0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is, you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is,
1: tell everyone about Book Club.
2: Welcome to IRC Book Club today. We have Jeb Blunt on the show, author of Inked, which we have covered over the last few weeks, described by Anthony Anarino as a modern day Zig Ziglar. Jeb is fast becoming a legend in the world of sales development with, I believe, 11 books to his name. I first came across Jeb when reading what is actually, to me, a bit of a seminal work in fanatical prospecting at the time when I read it. I was in a little bit of a dark place. I'd kind of forgotten where I came from as a sales professional, and fanatical prospecting was the kick in the ass I needed. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's very, uh, very nice to be here. I feel grateful and uh, thankful to you for not only reading my book, but inviting me on to have a conversation about it.
2: Now you don't know what we're going to ask you yet. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so, Mike and I normally prepare a number of questions. I think really the first one is, where did Inked come from for you?
1: Well, a couple of things. One is watching salespeople negotiate very poorly. And usually it was just either negotiating at the wrong time, almost always way too early. So they would be negotiating during an initial meeting. Or... They are just so desperate at the end that they begin giving all of their profit and their commission checks away. And there's in the beginning of the book, I, there's an email exchange that I walked through. With this with is this absolutely real. I took it, you know, directly off of my email of a rep just giving everything away over email, just negotiating with me that way. Wow. So, so, so it, it started there. Then Chris Voss wrote his, you know, blockbuster bestseller. Never Split the Difference, which I read and consumed and loved. And salespeople love the book too, except for the only problem with that book was it was very difficult to glean things from that book that could really help me in sales negotiation. And sales negotiation is just different than other types of negotiation because sales negotiation simply cannot be detached from the sales process, they're they're together, and yeah. and though though what Chris writes about and talks about is brilliant, I love listening to him speak. It, it just doesn't completely connect with everything that salespeople do. I also understand that, and I know this because I'm a salesperson and have been a salesperson my entire life. And we don't always talk about this because we like to, to cover it over, but salespeople are almost always in a weaker position than the person they're negotiating with, almost always. And then if you, and if you look at this, you know, the, the negotiating training that most companies give, Chris's company, Karas um, does a bunch of training that way. Nothing wrong with those trainings. I've been through them. They're fantastic. But they mostly teach you how to negotiate with someone else. When you're the buyer, even though they're not supposed to be that way, that's how they teach you because it's easy to connect with versus teaching you how to negotiate when you're the salesperson and what your role is there. So if you're the salesperson and you're walking into most deals and you're already in a weaker position, i am not all deals, but most deals in a weaker position, if we don't teach you how to strengthen your position over the course of the sales process, then you're going to keep losing. And if companies keep investing in their, their professional buyers, making their professional buyers so much better than you are, you know, we constantly have this, this professional versus amateur contest going on where you've got professional buyers who know how to negotiate and they understand how to play salespeople and pull the emotional... You know, tug the emotional strings for salespeople, salespeople are going to keep losing. So my entire goal here was not to replace all of the amazing negotiating books that have been written in the past, because there's some just fantastic work out there, but rather to write a sales specific primer, as my as my publisher says, specifically for salespeople focused only on one thing, very narrow, when you're the salesperson and you're negotiating with a buyer, how do you hold on to your commission check? How do you get a win for yourself and your team? And at the same time, how do you maintain those long-term relationships so that you don't you don't disconnect from the lifetime value of your customer?
2: Yeah, I, 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 it's interesting. Uh, you say in the book, salespeople suck at negotiating. Um, for me, and i wonder the extent to which you'd agree, That's because actually the economy has been great, that we've been in a prevailing market. And as a result, people haven't really had to be that good at it. And actually, I wonder the extent to which this book is very timely and that people are now going to have to become much better negotiators because they're going to have far less fat in every deal and far fewer deals with the fat in them to go at.
1: I think that's, I think partly that's true. I think that the, what, what's happened because the economy's been so good is it's been easy to be mediocre. So it's hard to tell people who are fantastic from those people who are mediocre. And yes, there are situations where you didn't really have to negotiate. But the truth is, is that there were salespeople giving away their commission checks during during a great economy just as much as they're giving yep. away their commission checks during a down economy. Now, negotiation definitely shifts in a down economy. It changes just a bit because, as you said, there are fewer deals in the pipe and there are more people who want those deals. So as a sales professional and, by the way, as a sales leader and an executives in the organization – You need to make sure that you're not losing deals because you're negotiating too hard because you need those deals for payroll, for cash flow. At the same time, you need to make sure that everybody understands where the lines are drawn because in a down economy, you can make deals for the sake of getting deals and create even more damage to the organization because you bring in deals that that are actually negative profit just for the cash flow. And that that doesn't help your organization either. But I think if you go back to the good economy, the the salespeople who were really making bank were the ones who could negotiate really well because they were able to pick up on all of the levers that organizations drop into commission plans. So for for a lot of salespeople. Their commission is based on how much gross profit is in a deal or how many add-ons that they get that are more profitable or how many years in the contract or what are the terms and conditions. So in a good economy, when, you're, when you've got a lot of deals in the pipeline, you gain a lot of emotional uh, discipline. So the, the more opportunities you have, the more alternatives you have as a salesperson, the more your power position at the table goes up. So you can negotiate a little bit harder And not have that fear that if you lose the deal, you'll walk away. But at the same time, tons of salespeople just walking away, walking around just going, yeah, you know, I'll discount 20%. (laughs) They get the deal, they get the deal, they get the deal, they get the deal. But they're not really helping themselves or their company. So, you know, all of a sudden we're in a situation now in this moment where the tide's gone out. And what's happening, especially around sales and negotiation, is that suddenly we're able to see all of the people that have been swimming naked.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. One of the things that came up that was really interesting in the book was you talk so much about emotional discipline and the, the whole concept of that. And Mike and I had a conversation when we were talking about the book where I explained my theory about world-class golf. And my theory about world-class golf, which isn't my theory, it's my brother-in-law's theory, actually. So I wouldn't want to own the IP to this. He says that to play world-class golf, You've either got to have the mind of a fighter pilot, be intellectually brilliant and so incredibly self-aware that you never let the game get inside your head, or actually you have to be a little bit stupid so that you never let the game get inside your head. And we talked for a while, Mike and I, about the extent to which actually some negotiators, and Mike and I have both experienced this. Some salespeople who've done very good have often come from both of those intellectual extremes, where sometimes you'll meet a guy who's a bit workmanlike, a little bit process-driven, not perhaps the most intellectually sharp guy, but he just gets on with his work and the job doesn't get inside his head. And he therefore, A, probably has a larger pipeline because he prospects a little bit more, and B, they have that emotional discipline.
1: So I, I totally buy what you're saying, and you but you said something that's really important. So the people that you described are process driven and, and, and whether you're, I'll count myself on the people that are just not that smart, uh, but I'm a, I'm a process driven person. I don't, I don't separate the process from the, the, you know, from, from the emotion. The emotion is part of it, but you have to manage the process. So, so that was, if you think about that, I talk about the, the emotional discipline a lot, but I focus on process so MLP strategy, motivation, leverage, power, which is the core of the book, the heart of the book, is, is all about basically how do you run the sales process? You cannot separate the sales process from the negotiation. The way that you manage your emotions, whether you're You know, you're, you're a, you know, super high IQ person or you're, you know, you're a dumbass like me. Um, either way, right, is if I go through the process step by step by step. So if I prospect a lot, I have more in my pipeline. We just talked about that. The more stuff you have in your pipeline, the more alternatives you have, the more strength you have to manage your discipline. I mean, the easiest way to become a better negotiator as a salesperson is to fill your pipe up. That's, that's, that's number one. But number two, recognizing that if you walk, if you're walking into deals, and a weaker position, and and power, when we talk about power, power is derived from alternatives. So the more alternatives that your buyer has, including the alternative to do nothing or the alternative to do it themselves or the alternatives to do it with one of your competitors, the more alternatives that they have, the more power they have at the table because when you have alternatives, you can negotiate like you don't need to negotiate. So for salespeople, you've got to recognize that the process from the moment that you say hello all the way through the point that you're negotiating is all about reducing the number of viable options that the stakeholders perceive that they have by building a good business case. That's process. So you've got to go do discovery. You've got to, you've got to you know, put your mind to it and think about what are the what's the business case you're building? How do you eliminate, say, the option of doing nothing by the questions that you're asking? At the same time, you've got to manage your own emotions so that you can influence the emotions of your stakeholders. One of the easy ways to reduce the viability of perceived alternatives is to make them like you. I mean, if they really, really like you and they want to do business with you, then it's really hard for them to say, well, I want to go do business with someone else because maybe they've got a better product, but I don't really like the salesperson. So we have to we have to increase their motivation to do business with us while decreasing our motivation to do business with them because we have more in our pipeline, while at the same time. Going through the process step by step by step by step by step and building a business case that eliminates the other alternatives so that they have no choice or at least they don't think they have a choice not to do business with you. And where, where salespeople, like you say, let it get in their head, there's two things that they do. One is they overthink things. They, you know, they they figure they've got their own way. Those are the salespeople that are typically skipping over the process versus the journeyman that you talked about who says, okay, here's the process. Boss says this is what I got to do, so I'm going to go through the process. Those people tend to outsell the people who go, well, I've got a better way. Don't skip the process. And at the same time, you know, you can't get to the end. And, you know, and and either you get so attached to winning that you drive such a hard bargain that you lose the customer along the way because they don't like you anymore. Or you don't recognize that in that moment, if you don't build the relationships and build the business case, both of those things, if you don't do that, if you skip steps, then all you have is whatever they're throwing at you, which is typically price, and you have no ammunition. You have nowhere to go. So, the way you describe that is brilliant, and I, and I love it, and that is y- if you're a process-driven person, you're probably going to be a better sales negotiator simply because you built the case and removed the alternatives. If you are letting it get in your head, if you're overthinking it, or if you don't have a big pipeline and you can't manage your emotions yeah. – you're you're probably going to end up giving it all away or you're just going to lead. And what I see more than anything is I just see salespeople leading with their maximum discount. I mean, if we say you can discount 20 percent, their first gambit, right, is, OK, I'll give you 20 percent off. And then when that runs out, they got to go to the boss to try to get some more stuff. And the boss, of course, gives it to them because the boss needs to get the deal because the boss needs to hit their forecast.
2: Yeah. Mike, I know you wanted to ask a question there.
1: I've got loads of questions actually for you and I'm Go going to on, specifically
0: then. reference the book actually. So page 187, chapter 26, the chapter is developing your give take playlist. Now I yes. thought this was excellent actually. And for, for people listening, you haven't yet read the book. There's a table in it on page 189, which is called your negotiation parameters analysis. And effectively, I'm going to paraphrase you slightly here, Jeb, but effectively it says, what can you get away with giving away? Yes. Fundamentally, now when I first got into sales in 2000, our negotiation advice from our managers was: "You can't, you can't negotiate at all." That was it. The client, <laughs> it's, you're it's laughing. True. It's true. The it's clients true. had to do it our way. Full stop. That was it. Now, interestingly, you know, roll on ten years, twelve years to to, to 2012. Let's say we gave some of our people a little bit more leverage, and we said, "Well, I tell you what." Bit more freedom is the right word. Sorry, we said, I tell you what, you can negotiate. You know, you're in charge of your table. You can negotiate. Guess what happened? They acquiesced and negotiated immediately. Yes. So, what's your thoughts here, Jeb? Because I think as a manager, I'm very inclined to say, nope, you can't negotiate. You've got to find a way to do it.
1: So you're nodding, so obviously you're gonna have an opinion on this. Yeah. So I think that I think that I think that is a viable strategy when you're happy with the deals that you get versus the deals that you lose. So for example, if you know, there's some things that we won't negotiate. So there's non-negotiables in my business, typically around intellectual property. And those are just not, I'm just not negotiating certain things. Like there's certain clauses and agreements that I won't negotiate. But I give my people leeway to negotiate with their customers because I want to capture every piece of business that we possibly can. And because I have a lot of trainers, I have the ability to capture that business. Now, if someone says, we want Jeb, so we've got clients who want me, I'm not that negotiable on my time because everybody wants my time. There's so much demand on my time that I'm able to say, this is how much I cost. And if you're not willing to pay that, I totally get it. I'm I'm okay with that. Here are your other options, but I, this is what I am, and you can't negotiate that out. So if you sell a product that people want really badly, and you don't really have to give away margin for it because you're that good, and if you lose a few deals because they, they just, the customer decided to walk away because you wouldn't negotiate with them, it doesn't really harm you that much, then that's probably a decent strategy to have, just to tell your people that they can't negotiate. On the flip side, if you're in a really competitive market where you've got a lot of alternatives for your buyers and you've got a lot of salespeople and a lot of deals getting done and you don't really want to lose deals because the long the long game is so important. So the lifetime value of a customer that you acquire is worth so much more that losing that customer over a few dollars or a few issues with terms and conditions hurts you way worse than you certainly want to give your salespeople the ability to negotiate. Now, the key is that you you give them parameters that they can work with and, inside, and they have to stay inside those parameters. And then, of course, they have to go get approvals So if you've got a really big sales organization, like you had three people, this is easy, but you got a thousand Mm -hmm. salespeople, you need to be able to say, you know, here are the parameters that you can negotiate in. These are the parameters for terms and conditions, these are the parameters for pricing. Those those may have some different segmentations. I had a company that, you know, once you got over a certain level, you had to get your calculator out because then we were looking at margin versus at individual prices because those deals were complex. And and then you've got to get the, the next level up from that salesperson. You've got to give that person the ability to negotiate. And then the next person, and then some deals, for example, I work for a company, there were deals that, you know, if it was over $2 million, it had to go to the CFO and go to the president just to get approval to even walk into a negotiation because the implications to the organization, the risk was so high that you mm-hmm. needed to have a different set of eyeballs on that. So I think it's, I think it is situational and it's context dependent based on the sales organization, based on the product service that you you're selling based on the competitive set that you're working with and based on your, your, you know, the, the lifetime value of a customer. So I'll give you a great example. Uh, I worked in an industry where we signed contracts and so when a customer came to us, we signed a contract and then we build the customer on a weekly basis based on that contract. Well, the retention rate on a contract was was somewhere north of 90%. Those contracts were typically three to five years. So at a 90% retention rate after that, that renewed for the second term that was a that was really, really profitable business. You only paid the salesperson once for the business. Mm-hmm. Over the term of that, of, that, uh, of that relationship, you could raise the prices. You could upsell, cross-sell. You could do other things to them. So the value of those customers tended to expand over time. So getting the deal in, in the first place, that was important. And if you locked, you know, if you put handcuffs on the salespeople and they weren't able to negotiate in the moment and they walked out the door, it was so competitive that your, you know, your next door, next competitor would walk in and go, I'll do the deal with you and you would lose it. So for that organization, not giving the people the ability to negotiate didn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think you just have to, you have to think about in terms of, who you are as a business, where do you want to be, what your current situation is, and then make good decisions about what you're going to allow your salespeople to negotiate or not negotiate. But I will tell you this, it requires great leadership. If you're going to, if you're going to allow your, your salespeople to have more leeway, you've got to have some trust and faith. You've got to recognize that sometimes they're going to make stupid mistakes that you're going to have to go fix and clean up. Um, but you also have to be able to coach those mistakes so that they don't make the mistake again. And people have a tendency to learn from mistakes, so that's not always a bad thing.
0: Okay, thanks. Now another one for you. Then so page forty-one, which is chapter six. Your title is "Sales Negotiation Rule One: Win First, Then Negotiate." I mean, I think that's hundred percent, absolutely right. Completely agree with that. But it is a little bit idealistic at times, because <laughs> we all know there's scenarios in which one of the key buying criteria of the prospect is gonna be price. So in that yes. situation, what are you doing, Jeb? Are you walking away from it? Are you trying to overcome the objection, or are you going to have a picture talking to about price straight away?
1: Okay, so so let's just talk about what we mean by win first and negotiate, and then negotiate, and negotiate last. So, yeah. um, so this is this is being selected as the vendor of choice, and there's two types of selection. One selection is implicit. And one is explicit. So the explicit selection is, if you said to me, Jeb, this is a great proposal. We really, really like you, and we want to do business with you, but... We've got some issues with the contract. We've got some issues with the pricing. We need you to work on this. That's explicit. They said, "I want to do business with you," but those are my favorite words in sales. I love when I hear that because yeah. because you're you're usually going to have to negotiate something. And but every once in a while, you know, you walk out and you're not negotiating anything at all. That's cool. I get that. But they they've picked you. If you're working on a complex deal, that explicit choice maybe you you getting a whisper in your ear from, say, your coach or executive sponsor. This happens to me all the time. We're working on big deals where the person that is my executive sponsor will tell me, hey, you've got this deal. It's yours to lose, basically. So you need to do these things. So they're telling me what I need to do in order to make sure that all of the stakeholders are satisfied and we're able to, to win the deal. Implicit is more about how they're interacting with you. So if they're advancing to the next steps with you, if they're engaged, if you ask them to do things, they match your effort and they do those things for you. That the they're asking great questions. That they give you the data. That when you run through the business case, they're paying attention to you. They're not saying outright, "Look, I want to do business with you," but their actions, everything that you're getting from them, is saying, "Hey, this is this is something we want to do." And in those cases, when they come to you and say, "Listen, I, I I've got to negotiate the price." The question has to be this. It has to be, if I were to make it to the price that you need, are we going to be able to do business together? Because if the answer is, well, we're still looking at all our options, then you haven't won. You're, you're, mm. you're not negotiating with yourself. You're bidding against a competitor. I mean, you're negotiating with yourself. You're bidding against a competitor. You're not negotiating with them. So the reason I want to find that out before I, I move forward in negotiation, if they say, well, no, we haven't made a decision yet, but we need you to sharpen your pencil. At least at that point, I can step back and think about what my strategy is going to be. It doesn't mean that I might not be in that situation where I might go in with a lower price. I, I think you're exactly right. Right, I mean, we do live in the real world where mm. we where we do have to deal with real customers and imperfect situations. But at least I know what I'm dealing with, and I can make a better decision about how I'm going to proceed. And sometimes in, in those cases, I don't do anything at all. Like a lot of times, when they say that, I just don't give them anything and wait to, for wait for them to come back to me, and then I ask the question again. Now, the problem that we face is when you say a customer's only moves forward in price. And this is what I mean by salespeople negotiating at the wrong time. You're in your initial meeting. So the initial meeting is typically after you've done prospecting, you've you've engaged the customer where they came inbound to you, you went outbound to them, and you asked for the initial meeting. The Mm. purpose of the initial meeting is twofold. It is essentially to... Um, to assess whether you want to work with them. Are they qualified to work with you? Some of that qualification was probably already done earlier in the, in the prospecting or business development process, but you want to sit down with them either via video or on the phone or face-to-face, and you're seeing, are they a good fit? Is there an opportunity here? Do they have so many options out there available to them that I'm probably just a, you know, I'm just checking a, a, a column in a spreadsheet, At the same time, you want to build enough interest with them, the stakeholders that you're working with or the stakeholder you're working with, that they are motivated to move to the next step with you. So the the next step is typically going to be deeper discovery. The problem that salespeople face in those particular moments is they sit down with the stakeholder and the stakeholder says, well, you know, listen, I I don't have a lot of money. So before we can move forward, I need to know how much it costs. And at at that particular moment, right, the, the salesperson begins chasing what is essentially a red herring which is something that takes them off the process. So instead of saying that makes sense that price is really important to you and it may not make sense for us to work together, so why don't we start with me asking you a few questions so I can better understand you. Then we can talk a little bit about what I do as a company to work with companies like yours, and we can talk about some of the pricing models to make sure that it makes sense for us to move to the next step. And then I step into asking you questions. If I do that, almost always that initial price objection that you get, that red herring, it Mm. almost always goes away. Because if they're talking and you're listening and you're building enough interest, one of the things that you can say is I know that you're worried about price. I can assure you that our programs, our service, our product is a lot more affordable than you think. And it will help save you money, help save you time, help do this, 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 and this. What I need to do is to jump into some deeper discovery. Then I'll put together a blueprint or a business case for how we take care of you. And then you'll have our pricing and you'll be able to compare that to your other options and make a good sound decision for your organization. This is me using leverage, motivation, leverage, and power. Leverage is my information. Leverage is my pricing. I'm using that leverage to bend their buying process. Their buying process is show me all your cards and then and then I'll, I'll go through the process with you. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. You don't get my cards until we go through the process. And if the person says, well, listen, if you don't show me your prices, I can't, I can't go through this process. I've got a choice to make as a salesperson. Is this viable? Is this worth my time and effort? And that's gonna be based on whether or not there's a high probability that if I give you all my cards, we're still gonna do business together or is this something I just need to walk away from? Again, what's the purpose of the initial meeting? The initial meeting is to decide, do I want to dance? And to to, to get them interested enough, if I want to dance, that they want to dance. So, that's typically what happens. Now, one more th- one more thing that happens to you in some cases, especially when you're dealing with monster deals that are in a lot of cases RFP driven and they're driven by purchasing, there'll be a couple of rounds. So in some cases, they'll come to you and say, if you wanna move to round two, you have to show your your base pricing, your foundational pricing. Yeah. And that's gonna be the ticket to the game. That happens. And there's yep. nothing wrong with that because all of the competitors are in exactly the same place. You just need to make sure that you understand what are, what's the criteria, the evaluation criteria that moves you to the next round so that you don't end up giving everything away so that you don't have any room to negotiate at the end. So so that, there's nothing wrong with those. they are all strategic things. But in that case, I'm not, I'm not necessarily negotiating. I'm, I'm showing you some of my cards that says – I'm willing to work within a range that you're giving me. And therefore, now we can move to the next step. The key thing, though, is that you're managing the process and you're advancing through the process before you negotiate. And if you do that, you're going to win a lot more deals at a much higher price and much higher margin.
2: That's cool. cool. Thank you for that, Jeb. We, one of the things, and I'd like to stay on the whole concept of win first, then negotiate. And something I find when we're reading these books is that. it's been a great exercise for us as book club because in a way it's been great for our own personal self-development. We have to read a sales book a month, no matter what, we have an audience, they want it, we therefore do it. And as we do it, we create content, but also as we create content, I actually learn stuff and I think about my own game and my own job. And one of the, the thoughts that came up and that's really got me thinking a bit and I just wonder if you agree on this, was I wrote down in my in my margin notes that negotiation is a much more holistic thing than perhaps we're giving it credit for. And my theory was that every single piece of perception that you allow to seep into the mind of a buyer, at some point, I, I, it, this was what was going through my head, was at some point it's added to almost a little evaluative, balanced scorecard that pops up from the subconscious mind of the buyer or the stakeholder at negotiation time and is then used and is almost a starting point at that point in the negotiation. And I, I can understand why you can't really cover that in a book like the one we've just talked about. But for me, it, Michael and I were talking, it, it's it's so many little things adding up to the big thing that create that negotiation leverage. It's, it's crazy, silly things. Like, for example, as a recruiter, sometimes, Jeb, we see a candidate with a ludicrous LinkedIn profile photo. Sounds silly, but they have a ludicrous LinkedIn profile photo. It's just plain stupid. And what they don't realize is, as part of their own holistic negotiate, negotiation leverage package, they're costing themselves thousands of pounds in the deal,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, I, and I and I thought a lot about how much more holistic the negotiation is, and how much cumulative leverage comes in very ethereal ways in in the deal before actually they a salesperson gets to a point where they're negotiating the deal.
1: So I, I, th- that was complex. So I'll, I'll hit a couple of things Bit there. Deep, I know. <laughs> Well, one of the things that you described is actually not that deep is you described anchoring. So anchoring is a, is a way that human beings, like you said, there's an evaluation checklist. We evaluate the worth of something uh, from a particular point. So yeah. if, you were, if you were to go on a car lot, you, you look at the sticker, there's a price on the sticker. That is the place where you begin evaluating what, you know, what the worth of the car is. They anchored you to a point. But we always think about anchoring in terms of pricing, and quite brilliantly, what you've done is you've said anchoring can be more than just pricing. It can be a perception that 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 changes what people value for the deal. For example, if you if you go to a candidate and you see a really poor picture, like you said, a ludicrous picture on LinkedIn, <laughs> immediately, well, immediately you lower what you believe that person is worth worth based on what you see. Yes. Now that's, that's a form of anchoring and a form of motivation. So when we go back to motivation, why is it that I want to win first and then negotiate? Because when I win, what, what I'm saying is that the buyer has, has become motivated to do business with me and motivation is nonlinear it's human, it's emotional, and it's, it's at the individual stakeholder level. So if I have multiple stakeholders in a deal, each of those stakeholders may have a different level of motivation to do business with me. I, I wrote a book back in 2010 called People Buy You. And that, that title stands today. People buy you. They're purchasing you first because the emotional experience that the buyers have, the stakeholders have, as they go through the process with you, and I want you to, I'm going to say this one more time, the emotional experience. That emotional experience is both at the conscious and the subconscious level. But that emotional experience as they go through the process is a more consistent predictor of outcome of any other variable. And your example of the picture from LinkedIn is, 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 a, is perfect. Like it just nails that. If your emotion experience because you see this person or you perceive something if that if that experience is is not great, then it changes what's going to happen at the end. It changes yeah. the outcome right so it, it, it's an anchoring point but it's also a motivation point so why do we hold on to our leverage why instead of negotiating early, we hold on to that because in essence this is a sales process we're engineering. The, 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 relationship, we're engineering the emotion. And I think you, I think you nailed this thing that you have to look at everything that you do and you have to be perfect and everything. Now you're not going to be perfect because you're a human being and you can't be perfect, but you have to strive for that because most deals, that motivation, do I want to be, do business with you? That selection, right, of the vendor of choice. That's happening not by a wide margin. It's often happening by a small margin. And and as crazy as it sounds, it could be the difference between we're on a video call, what your background looks like, right? What your set looks like, what your backdrop looks like, what your video looks like. They can have a bad experience with that. And someone else had, they had a good experience with and stakeholders. We. I mean, we're human beings. We make decisions for all kinds of crazy things. They see that as better. So that's why I say from the very beginning you cannot separate the negotiation from the sales process. It is holistic because it's the entire process, and that's where almost all negotiation training just gets it wrong because they don't see it exactly the way you see it.
0: Yeah, I'm going mean, to say on the back of that, Sorry to interrupt you, Jonathan, go on, Mike. But I thought that was the fundamental difference between your book, uh, between your book Jeb, and between Chris Voss's book. You said it really early on. Chris Voss's book was very much like a textbook about negotiation, whereas yours was more like a sales book about negotiation, I thought.
1: Yeah, well, this book is about sales negotiation. I mean, I'm sure you could use this book in other negotiating um, situations, but it wasn 't built to negotiate a merger and acquisition it wasn 't built to negotiate some <laughs> you know some criminal a out hostage of a building. crisis right it wasn 't negotiating between lawyers it wasn 't negotiating between spouses or if you 're buying a house it is you 're negotiating as a salesperson and, and speaking of real estate you know we're, we talk about real estate negotiating it 's teaching a real estate agent to negotiate with the person that they 're trying to get to list their house to change. The, the, you know The dining room from purple to beige because it 's going to sell better or negotiate down what the buyer or the seller thinks their house is worth and in the case of recruiting, it may be negotiating with the candidate to change their resume or to um, to, to, to change the, you know, the way that they 're going to approach the, the person that is the hiring manager that you 're sending them to. It could yeah. be any of those any of those particular things. But we just have to recognize that we're, we're not negotiating to go buy something for ourselves. We're often negotiating from a weaker standpoint. And like, and let's just go recruiting. Now, if we go to recruiting, in recruiting, your negotiating, um, power has gone up a lot because a lot of people aren't working right now. So if, if there's not a lot of people working, you've got a lot of negotiating power because you've got a lot of alternatives. When everybody's working, and, and we're at, you know, at top employment, Your negotiating ability. Your power goes up more with hiring managers, l- less with the, the people that you're trying to bring in. So yeah. it's, you're always going to have a change in, in, where the power is, but you need to know where the power is. Power is alternatives. And you need to recognize that the most important thing you can do is get people to select you. I want to work with you. I want to do business with you. I want to do that. Once that happens, it's all downhill. That's what I mean by you know it's yours to lose at that point. You still have to build business case. You still have to get the price and the terms and conditions right. Those things matter, but it's a lot easier to do that when the person has already made the emotional decision to pick you. At that point, you, you have a place to work versus the, the other side of that is you're negotiating with yourself, and I don't know how to do that outside of the sales process because otherwise, why have a sales process? Why don't we just negotiate? And we'll just, you know, here's the deal, negotiate. And that's what a lot of salespeople do. And that's why it's, you know, they're they're basically scratching lottery tickets.
2: I concur. I think a lot of seasoned sales professionals, Jeb, at least in our world, Mike, Mike and I live in the enterprise technology space. So we're very lucky um, in a way because we deal with salespeople at typically the most elite level, or at least the most elite level of pay, if not necessarily the elite level of skill. And at least in our u- universe, what I find is when we're interviewing candidates, a lot of the really good ones would be able to tell you what pretty much all the negotiation issues would be with a given opportunity, pretty much before they start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before they make pick up the phone. And I, I know as a recruiter of 20 years, I can thin slice, for for want of using Malcolm Gladwell's phraseology, a candidate, and I can tell you, six weeks from now, I'll have him in an interview, and he'll negotiate on the following issues. He'll neg- mm-hmm. he'll want that that that, and those will be the points upon which you'll negotiate. And I can start my process very early, and get well ahead of that, well before it normally takes place, so that by the time the negotiation arises and the candidate is sat there with the client negotiating the package in reality we've already kind of done it
1: and so let me let me show uh, you yeah, something because i you just nailed this so if if we if we take a look at a, an enterprise level deal and the people that you're dealing with a big deal so this is typically what it looks like there's a start right and there's a finish at some point in the end this is this is what we're doing what you just described is what the best Salespeople do. What the best salespeople do is they start at the end and they work their sales back. So if if you walk into an enterprise level deal or you're dealing with this type of a candidate, if you just do that, then if you say this is what it's gonna take to get this deal based on my experience, and that's something that a green salesperson can't get, then you start you start organizing your strategy, your MLP strategy, motivation, leverage, and power, right? You start organizing that here. And then work yourself backwards through the steps to engineer both the relationship and how you proceed so that by the time you get here, you've either dealt with some of those negotiating issues along the way, you've altered your business case to conform or align with where they think they need to be, or you've actually prepared yourself to deal with those things and be able to show them why they need to take the path that you've taken them, but you already know that. So, for example, if you know that one of the things that people will say is, we could just keep doing this in-house, then during discovery and somewhere in here, you've got to be asking questions. And I'm not talking about questions that give you information. You've got to be asking provocative questions, artful and strategic questions that provoke the person into becoming aware that doing it on their own is not viable, but they have to do that on their own. So this is strategy. And this is what I mean by, you know, the, I talk about chess a lot in the book, but this is, this is game strategy, motivation, getting them motivated to do business with you, leverage, using your leverage so that you can go through these steps, and then power, like being able to reduce the number of alternatives that impact their power. And this is what you just described. This is what the ultra-outperforming salespeople in the world do. They all do this. They start at the end and move backwards. And part of the book is to help people see this because what most salespeople do, what most of them do is they begin here and then they sort of weave their way that way, bumping into things along the way until they run into a problem. And that's why they end up negotiating before they've been selected, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it very much does. Mike, is there anything you'd like to ask?
0: By the way, that made perfect sense. I loved your explanation of that. I thought it was great. Um, Now, going back to the book, page 240, there's a great diagram here, I think, which is deal. Discover, explain, align, lock. I liked that. I thought it was absolutely excellent, that. I really liked that. It felt to me, Jonathan said it in the book club show, It felt to me like something you could write in the top right. You could write in the top right-hand corner of your, of your notepad when you were sat opposite somebody. Off the top of your head, Jeb. Well, no, I'll answer it first. So I I must have met I don't know ten thousand candidates, salespeople, something like that. Probably more. I've done it for twenty years. Just loads. Don't know. If you said to me, what proportion of salespeople are thoughtful with some formality of this kind or another? I think it honestly is about 3%. I'd be very surprised if it was more than five. You walk into an organization, Jeff, probably not you, probably one of your guys, and you go, right, you write this on your whiteboard. How much the response rate from the audience, how much of it is a jaw-dropping? I never really thought about that. And you're talking to guys that have been selling stuff for 25 years.
1: I will agree with you. I think, first of all, that you're probably right three three to four percent of the people just really get this and understand it. Um, and I think that I think that the the number of of buyers who have a drop a, a jaw dropping experience with with a salesperson who really has that thoughtfulness and that intention um, with questions with discovery. And then, and then, even in a even in a, in a conversation where you're negotiating, to, to step back and do it again, getting all the issues on the table before they jump, I think it's a very thin slice of humanity. It does not mean that people can't do it. They absolutely can do it. Uh, we see that every day because we teach them to do this. Uh, but it t- it requires patience, and in a lot of cases, it requires salespeople who are are more outcome-driven. So there's the, the very best salespeople over time, and this is statistically, are the ones that are, that are much more outcome-driven. So they're, they're more focused on getting to an outcome. Those salespeople, by the way, if they, don't, if they don't pull that in and get intentional about stepping into people's shoes and really understanding them, the, the, the longer cycle sell and the more complex the sell. So you start getting into enterprise level, especially when you're talking about technology and IT, those people have a tendency to blow it pretty fast because buyers lose patience with them because they're only focused on outcome so when you start moving up the ladder at that level that talent level so you move from more uh transactional to mid short cycle sales into into that realm that's why there's fewer people at that level because they're playing in the show i mean they're playing at the at the high levels of sales yeah and, but even there, even there, those folks need to hone it, hone those skills because they lose them and they forget about them and they forget that there's another human on the other side which is one of the problems with people who are in those spaces because they're typically high IQ and high IQ people tend to think faster than other folks and they get ahead of themselves and they do a lot of damage to their relationships. So this process, this deal process, like you said, is something you could write up on the left side in our negotiation planner, um, which you can download if you go into the book, but it is up on the right-hand side of the planner to remind you that before you start, start talking, get their stuff on the table. Now, going through the planner, we want to be building their list along the way. We want to be thinking along the way. What are the issues that are going to, they're going to run into? What are the things that are really important to them? We want to know that. But if, if you don't at the end, when they start, you know, saying, well, I need you to do better, if you don't stop and get the issues on the table, two things happen. One, it doesn't give you time to think uh, about what your move's going to be. You may jump before you really truly understand, and we don't always do and B, you miss the opportunity to get them talking, which makes them feel really good about you. And when they feel really good about you, they feel an obligation to move forward. So some of the issues that seem really big tend to go away because again, they're motivated to work with you. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You You mentioned one of the things that uh, has always fascinated me both as a reader of the book and as a business owner and as a leader of people, Is you talk about in the book about practicing for key scenarios, just practicing what you're going to say, Mm -hmm. getting in a room and thrashing it out. Sales leader sits behind the desk, salesman sits on the other side. Let's pretend. And I I really like that. And I've tried as a leader uh, and as a manager and as a coach over the years to encourage that or encourage colleagues. Why don't you guys go from practice to that? All well, right, it's the fourth time you've been hit, nailed by that objection. Why don't the two of you guys go and practice at lunchtime? Yet people don't.
1: Why they don't? It's, Why? Well, first of all, well, first of all, practice isn't any fun, and it, so you know, if you ask most 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 athletes, they'd probably rather play in the game than go practice. Yeah. So practice is tedious. It's not fun. It's hard. It's it's not the real thing and we delude ourselves into believing that going through a practice isn't real, so how could we how could we learn anything from it? So there's a couple of things that that I'll I'll tell you about practice and why you should be practicing. Uh, but I do understand why people don't. Um, the other the other reason is that sales leaders, and this happens a lot, we tell people go practice. We don't make them practice, and so that's the reason why there are coaches on sports teams because they make people practice. <laughs> yeah, one they of do. the things that, one of the things that we do is we call it murder boarding. So we'll go through the deal, and we'll start off with let's find all the scenarios that could put us in a bad situation when negotiating that could cause us to lose the deal, that could. Um, you know, impact us, what are the things they're going to ask for? We go through that process and then the, and the going through that process, we're able to then take out small things and then we can go role play the scenario or play through what our, what our give-take playlist would be. And we do that in advance and it's really, really helpful. So it's, it's easier to go through that process than to say, let's go practice scenarios because the process of murder boarding, and you can learn more about murder boarding in my book, Sells EQ. But if you go through murder boarding, what it does is it just forces you to 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 basically look at everything. And the re- reason we call it murder boarding is our job is to kill the deal. Like that's what we're doing, just kill the deal. So uh, so just a, a quick part of scenario or scenario role-playing in scenarios, something that I, I learned this week. I was uh, with a, um, a sleep specialist a guy named Jeff Zahn and we were doing an interview kind of like this. And we were talking about uh, when I was back in college and you may have had this experience as well. I would go into a test and I would ace the test. Even though when I walked in, I thought I didn't know anything. And what had happened was for maybe a week before that I'd worked on the material and then i'd gone to sleep at night and then woken up the next day and studied and gone to sleep at night and i wasn't trying to cram i wasn't trying to shove it in i was just doing a little bit at a time and in fact i could just read the textbook and then i would feel like i didn't know anything but when i slept i woke up the next day it would just stream out of me like i'm some sort of a genius yeah and w- what he said was that you know when you when you run through scenarios or you practice or you are you study or whatever when you sleep on it, what happens is your brain reorganizes um, the neurons and the synapses, and it creates long-term memory from that. Yeah, and which is really powerful. That's why athletes practice and practice and practice plays, so that then when they're in the game, they don't have to think; they just know it. And we've all—if we've all anybody's been in that situation—you know what I'm saying is absolutely true. And one of the things that I found about scenarios is by murder boarding and role playing the scenarios, in the moment it feels a little uncomfortable and it doesn't feel like it's real or it doesn't even feel like you're going to get it. It can even be scary to you because you're like, I'm going to so screw this up. (laughs) But by doing that in advance, when you walk through the door, all of a sudden you're in there and they throw something at you and it's just so much easier and part of it is that because you've planned so much, you're much more confident. And when you're more confident, you transfer confidence to the other person, and which minimizes or reduces the likelihood that they're going to throw out an objection or they're going to hit you with a hard ask because yes. they, they, they don't feel compelled that they can do that because of your demeanor. And you feel that way because you did the role plays and the scenario planning in advance. So it's a, it's a complicated thing, but it's brain science first. Um, that 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 drives the reason you should do that. But at the same time, if you've done the scenario planning and you get hit with something and you've been through it all, it's not a surprise to you. So when they go, "Hey, well, I, we're going to need you to do this," and you go, "I thought you'd probably say that," and I've already planned for that. Boom, 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 and you just come off as, "Wow, this person is really amazing." I mean, they just sit back and they're like, "We made the right." pick by choosing you, we're going to work out a deal. We can't, we can't imagine doing business with anybody else.
2: And it becomes leverage in and of itself. Absolutely. In the negotiation. I wrote it earlier What was, I know you allude in the book to the concept of, of a transference that takes place in the room between a salesperson and a stakeholder. And something I see and Michael sees in top performers is there is just an energy and an aura and a swagger that comes off a top performer from year, almost, I think Tony Robbins almost calls it like a rope that just binds thread upon thread upon thread upon thread. I call it the invisible gobstopper, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of the gobstopper, where it just becomes this powerful kernel of self-belief. And the transference of that is very powerful. Even, I would imagine, with the most well-trained buyer that hold on a minute. Why does this guy really, really think he's right? He just seems so certain. And I, and I, 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 I often look at, and I, I think books like this, I think, are great for those salespeople who don't yet or haven't yet built that layer of inner kernel of confidence that takes them through a negotiation with ease where actually it is a process and they can think, well, if I actually do all those other bits, I'll probably be like the guy that's been doing it 25 years where the customers just seem to cave.
0: Particularly in the current climate, because let's be clear, you know, there's going to be some economic uncertainty now. And I think that a lot of guys that you know are 26 and have only operated in a good market yeah. will maybe crumble versus some guy that's 56 and has been through the financial crash and the dot-com crash. You know, a lot of it is about grace under fire, isn't it? You know, the best boxers—they've been hit a lot, so it doesn't—they don't flinch when they get hit. You know, that's—you know—sales isn't necessarily that combative, but often it is. Yeah, not flinch. I—I think that's a very great—a great
1: great metaphor,
0: Mike, not flinching when you get hit.
1: Oh, Jeb's going to do his drawing. Come on, Jeb, show (laughs) us your drawing. (laughs) No, I think it's—you know—everything you're you're saying is exactly right, and um, it's—it's RAC. It's relaxed, assertive confidence, and it is absolute leverage because, like you said, when you're so confident and when you're relaxed, relaxed is, I just don't need the deal. Relaxed is the ability to say to a buyer who's giving you a hard time, say, you know, this really isn't for everyone. I I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, this this doesn't always work. And when you have that level of confidence and you can do that, suddenly – People are just wow, and that's that. That's that. The leverage comes in. They they lean into it with you, so they're they're leaning toward you, and and they're paying attention to you. And and the the problem with a with a newer salesperson, like you you talk about, the, I've been punched so many times. That's a form of obstacle immunity. Once I've once I faced this adversity or I face this issue enough times, I no longer feel afraid of the obstacle. Go back to scenario planning. If you're if you, I mean, you can wait till you're 56 years old. If you're 23, and then suddenly you'll have relaxed assertive confidence. Or you can gain relaxed assertive confidence by doing the scenario planning, going through the murder board, and get, getting hit in the face and practice, so that when you walk through the door. You feel relaxed, assertive, and confident. Relaxed is, I don't need the deal. Assertive is, you're willing to ask for what you want, and you're willing to ask for it specifically and without any hesitation. And your confidence is, I have have complete belief in what I'm doing. And you gain your confidence by going through the sales process, going through discovery, putting together an an unassailable business case that you truly believe in. And once you believe in that, it's really easy. If you didn't go through the sales process, I don't care who you are. You can't feel confident in what you're, what you're presenting or what you're negotiating because you don't know anything because you didn't do anything. So if you go back to that, how do I compress experience? You compress experience through practice, adversity, and training.
2: Great. So what's next for you now, Jeb? I noticed I've been looking on LinkedIn and I noticed you're talking about a book on virtual selling.
1: Yeah. So um, I'm working on a book right now called uh, Virtual Selling. Are you going to put me on? Put me on two if you don't mind. Um, I'm working on a book on uh, on virtual selling and it's called Virtual Selling. It will be out in mid-May. It's a uh, It's a hell of a project because I... Walked out of the shower in mid-March, and I had this idea to write this book, called my publisher up in New York, said, i got this really good idea to write this book, but this is crazy. I I think we need to get the book out in May. And and I said, what what do you think? And Shannon said, let's do it. So I'm essentially writing a 60,000-page book in about a month, uh, which normally takes about 18 months to do that. And we'll come out and mid to late May, probably probably later May, we'll have it out as an ebook, And so it'll come out on Kindle and Google Play. And then we'll have the hard copy out probably closer to July or mid-July because it just takes time to print books. And we'll get the audio book out at the same time. And the book explores virtual selling and and basically remote, it's really remote selling. So when I what when I'm not when I can't be there, what do I do? And how do I blend that into both face to face selling and use all the virtual selling communication channels that I have available to me, both synchronous and asynchronous, to more effectively connect with prospects, shorten sales cycles, and uh, and and build emotional connections when I can't be there. And I think that. I think that we all do some level of virtual selling. I mean, if, if you're, if you've talked to anybody on the telephone, that's essentially virtual selling yes, so it's it is. More, more of the awareness of how you blend all those tools in to create a better, a better overall process and experience for the buyer. And by the way, reduce your costs along the way.
2: Fantastic. Jeb, you've been an absolutely awesome guest today. Thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us your time this afternoon. Um, maybe we'll catch up after we've seen virtual selling
1: sounds like a good plan thank you for uh, having me on and thank you again from the bottom of my heart i'm truly grateful for and i'm going to hold the book cover up because i have to do gratuitous book cover but thank you for reading uh, inked i really appreciate it i'm i'm in love with this book and i'm just uh, i'm so it's so amazing that people all over the world are reading it so thank you
2: you're welcome good to see you today